Our scripture reading this morning is found in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. Reading from the ESV Bible, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Time of year, it's really hard to, to draw the line between the sacred and the secular as the world remembers Christmas time, and, and we're talking downstairs uh, about the way that, that people are running around like crazy celebrating commercialism. And I don't know about you, but I've had a number of close calls in parking lots over the last couple of weeks. I don't know what happens at this time of year to people's brains. I guess they're all trying to rush around, um, and they forget how to drive in parking lots for some strange reason. But not only is it difficult to draw the line between the, the secular and the sacred this time of year, it's also difficult to draw the line between tradition and what the Bible teaches at this time of year. It's already been mentioned that we really don't know what time of year Christ was born. Yes, this is the time that we remember, but it is very, very likely that he was actually born in the springtime, we know from the account of Scripture that, that, that at the time when Christ was born, the shepherds were abiding in the fields by night. And the only time of year that the shepherds do that is actually when, they're, when the, the ewes are giving birth to the lambs, which happens in the springtime. And it also would have been very cold at night. The shepherds would have been inside. They would not have been out in the fields. So... Yes, we do remember the birth of Christ at this time of year, but he was very likely not actually born at this time of year. I also want to, uh, to draw your attention to the nativity set that's there in front of you, and uh, we'll do a little test here. What's missing? So you see there's Mary and Joseph, check, and baby Jesus in a manger. You can come and check it out after he's there too. We've got a shepherd and some animals, but what's missing? The wise men. Now, 
I don't know who put that there, and I, and I didn't put them up to this, but the wise men are not there, and that's actually really interesting providence in light of, I just noticed that, just found that last night, somebody put it there sometime through the week, and that that's actually what I'm, one of the things I'm going to be talking about this morning, is that we remember, almost every nativity set that I have seen has got three, what people tend to refer to as kings, three kings there at the, at the manger scene, but we need to ask the question, does that actually line up with the biblical account? Were they actually there? Were there, were there three kings there at Jesus' birth? Now, if you've got three kings if, if in your manger scene, I'm not suggesting you have to take them out and, and throw them in the garbage. It, it really doesn't make a lot of difference um, as far as salvation goes, whether the kings were there or not. We have largely circumstantial evidence, though, that says that, says that they weren't. But what it does do is I think it points to a problem. How we will let tradition feed our thinking. And far more than that, it actually highlights the fact that we really don't study God's word carefully for ourselves to see what it really says. Which leads to a far, far more dangerous problem, that of elevating the teaching of men or the tradition of men to the level of Holy Scripture. And if you look back in church history, you know that it doesn't take very long when men turn away from Holy Scripture as their sole authority for the church to degenerate into apostasy and heresy. And that's how we ended up with the problem with the Roman Catholic Church, they had gone so far astray that they had really thrown out the concept of salvation by faith alone. And this is what led to the Reformation. But the Reformers countered with sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, the Bible alone is our authority. So we must be ever vigilant to make sure that, that our belief system is not grounded in tradition and be ever vigilant to make sure that our belief system is not grounded in the teaching of men, but in God's word alone. Now, if I didn't believe that, that there was some importance in tradition, I wouldn't study church history. If I didn't believe that that tradition wasn't important, I wouldn't study important documents like the Nicene Creed or the, or the Councils of Dort or the 1689 London Confession. These things are important and have their place. If I didn't believe that the teaching of men wasn't important, I wouldn't study works by John Owen or John Bunyan or Jonathan Edwards or listen to sermons by John MacArthur or John Piper. And it's interesting that they all start, they're all their first names were John. But if I didn't believe that the teaching of men wasn't important, I also would not be up here teaching. I wouldn't be up here teaching if I didn't think that there was something important in that. However, whatever I say, whatever anybody says, has to be filtered through the grid of God's Word. So as I said, it really is, is pretty much irrelevant whether the kings were there at Christ's birth or not. But let it be an object lesson to show you the way you think about Scripture. 
So this morning, I'm going to do something a little bit different. We're going to sing the popular Christmas carol, We Three Kings. Now, it won't be up in the, on the PowerPoint. We're going to follow it from the hymnal. It's hymn number, it's 197 in the hymnal. And uh, it's known as We Three Kings or We Three Kings of Orient Are. And I'm actually, what I'm going to do is we're going to sing the, the first verse in the chorus. And every time we finish a chorus, I'm going to say a few words about what was said just prior to it. What, we, what we've just sung. So if you can please open up in your, in your hymnals to, uh, to number 197, We Three Kings. The kings of Orient are Bearing gifts we traverse afar Field and fountain, moor and mountain and following yonder star, oh, star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. Thank you. Okay, we don't know very much about who exactly the three kings were, but they're actually more commonly or more accurately referred to as the three magi or the three wise men. And all we really know about these three men comes to us from Matthew's gospel, from Matthew 12, sorry, Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12 that we just read. Now, Matthew doesn't refer to them as kings, but simply as as I said, magi. Now, F.F. Bruce calls the notion that they were kings beautiful, but baseless. We have nowhere in Scripture does it say that they were, in fact, kings. They were magi. Now, magi is, is basically the Greek word which, which originally meant Persian, but it came to mean one who was a wise man and a priest, one who was an expert in astrology and in interpreting dreams. Now, traditionally, the, the three wise men, you might have heard that their names are um, Melchior, who is a Babylonian scholar, Caspar, a Persian scholar, and Balthazar, an Arab scholar. But once again, this information can't be confirmed. The earliest information that we have that says what their names were, or the, what their identities were, was from a, a Greek manuscript that was composed in Alexandria, Egypt, around 500 A.D., but while this may or may not be the case, since it's not in the Bible, we can't be dogmatic about it. We can't say, oh, I know what the names of the three kings were. We can only speculate. And really, when it comes to the things that are set up in Scripture, it's very, very dangerous to speculate. Now, I love historical fiction. That is one of my, my favorite genres of, of fiction, of literature. In fact, just uh, the other night, um, I watched A Tale of Two Cities with my mom and dad. And that's, if you haven't read it, it's, it's a brilliant book by Charles Dickens. And it's arguably my favorite book. And uh, it's, a, it's a, a fantastic story. It takes place during the, the French Revolution. And, and just, uh, I really recommend this, some, some, um, some really neat gospel overtones in that book. But I don't want, to, don't want to give it away, so, but I do recommend that you read it. But when it comes to historical fiction, it's okay to, to speculate and to 
to add a little fiction here to, to spice it up or to make it interesting. But when it comes to the, the secular versus the spiritual, we need to be very, very careful not to blend the two. We need to be careful to think about where the teaching of man only begins and let Scripture speak to us about these things. So, so when we watch certain movies that, that claim, that, that profess to be about the, the time of the birth of Christ or the life of Christ, it's very dangerous because we can then begin to think about those movies as being the reality, but Scripture has to inform our thinking. Now, am I saying you should never watch those movies? No, I'm not going that far. I'm just saying that you need to be very, very careful to separate what's being taught by men versus what God's Word says. But here in Matthew chapter 2, we see that these men were indeed wise men, as it says there in verse 1, and that they came from the east to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know exactly how far east they, tra that they, they came from, but they did indeed, as the song says, they did travel westward following that star to the birthplace of Christ. Now, here we actually see the first of the prophecies of Jesus' birth being a blessing to the nations. That the birth of Jesus would be a blessing to the nations because here we have three Gentiles, three Gentiles who came to worship the King of the Jews. Now, in, in John chapter uh, 1, verse 9, Jesus is referred to as the true light, which gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. Now, this was obviously a, a reference um, to Isaiah 49, 6, where it says of the suffering servant, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation will reach to the end of the earth. So John there in John 1 is talking about the light coming to everyone is including both Jew and Gentile. And that's a common theme in John's gospel, how, how Christ came for both Jew and Gentile to bring them salvation. But that prophecy didn't start there in Isaiah 49 either. It goes all the way back to, well, arguably all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, but it's very explicit in Genesis chapter 12. We talked about this when we were looking at Joshua there a few months ago. The promise that God made to Abraham that in Abraham all of the families of the earth would be blessed. All the families of the earth would be blessed in Abraham. So through Abraham's line, we're, we're looking back on this now so we know fully what that meant, but through Abraham's line would come the Messiah whose blessing would extend to the four corners of the earth. And we saw that beginning to be fulfilled in its, in its fullness in Acts chapter 1. When, when the, the disciples were sent out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to where? To the uttermost parts of the earth. And so missionaries now that go out from, from among us and go and bring the gospel of Christ into these countries are fulfilling that prophecy that in Christ would be a blessing that would come to the four corners of the earth. 
But those three magi saw the star and traveled westward to, to Jerusalem to find the Messiah. And they came there to Herod. Now Herod was the, the puppet king that had been established there by the Roman conquering army to rule in their stead. Herod was not royalty. He was placed there by the Roman authorities to rule as a puppet in their place. Now Herod was an evil, paranoid man who lived in constant fear that somebody was going to usurp his authority. In fact, he even had, had members of his family killed because he was afraid that they were going to, to take over. Now again, this, it's not exactly a tradition. There's much evidence that points to that fact in historical literature, but again, it's not scripture, it's not authoritative, it's, it's, it can't be proved one way or the other. But we do know, we do know that Herod was an abominably wicked man because of what he did when he went searching for the Messiah. He had all the male children under two years of age killed because he was afraid that the Messiah was going to come and usurp his authority and depose him as king. He was a wicked, wicked man. But when the, the when he when he went to the to the to the the uh, scribes of the people and the chief priests and he asked them where was the Messiah to be born, they told him in Bethlehem. And this quoted here in uh, from Matthew or sorry from Micah five two. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So here we have a, an, an Old Testament passage that clearly pointed to the city of Bethlehem, which interesting, interestingly means the house of bread, where the Messiah, the bread of life, would come from. Now there's many, many Old Testament scriptures hundreds, in fact, that actually point to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Last week, Brandon taught us from Isaiah 6, sorry, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. And last night, Dylan taught us about, about the prophecy of the death of the Messiah from Isaiah 53. We'll be talking more about his death in a few moments. But again, are you familiar with those passages? Have you studied the Old Testament with those things in mind. Have you looked for Jesus in the Old Testament? He's there all over the place. Think of Luke 24, 27, how on the road to Emmaus, when the risen Christ came to the disciples and said to them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So all through the Old Testament are prophecies and precepts and principles that have been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So we would do well to study the Old Testament with those things in mind, not to just gloss over them as something that is not relevant for us today, but to study them carefully, to study them carefully, to see Christ and where he's there. So the Magi left Herod, and then they continued to follow the star. And then in verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest 
over the place where the child was. This was no ordinary star. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now I want to spend a bit of time here examining the gifts or studying the gifts that were brought to Christ by the Magi. They knew who he was and they brought gifts that were fitting for a king. And the song that we're going to be singing attributes special meaning to each of these gifts. Now again, this is extrapolating from it. This is not really clear. The, the writer of this, of, this, of this carol attached clear meaning to each of these gifts and it's possible that this is what, what was, in, was intended with each of these gifts, but again, we don't know this for a fact. But let's, let's sing it anyway because it, it, it does show whether or not these gifts actually represented these things that does point it does point to who Christ was, and not only who Christ was, but who Christ, in fact, actually is. So let's sing the next verse and the chorus. Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again, king forever ceasing never over all to reign oh, oh star of wonder star of light star with royal beauty bright westward leading still proceeding guide us to thy perfect light so gold here was a gift that was fit for a king now we need to remember here that Joseph and Mary were very, very poor. Very poor. And you might be saying, well, where's he getting that from? We know this from the fact that they were not able to afford decent accommodation for Mary to deliver the child. Now, you know, we, we, we talked originally say there was no room at the inn. It does say that in Scripture. But if you've got money, there's room anywhere. They could, have, they could have gone to a nice place if they had the money to pay for it. Now, traditionally, we talk about Jesus being born in a stable. Traditionally, they say that he was born in a stable, but in actual fact, he was more likely born in a cave. Now, if you visit the Bethlehem area, the, the hillside there is, is full of little caves, and, and quite often caves were places where animals would be kept in that region. They were very convenient, they were climate controlled, and they were, they were, they were, it was easy for them to just put their animals in there and have a gate. It was most likely that Jesus was actually born in a cave in Bethlehem. But either way, whether a, a cave or a stable, it doesn't seem a very fitting place for a king, any king, let alone King Jesus, to be born. But we also know that Joseph and Mary were poor because they offered a pair of turtle doves as an offering after at the eighth day when he was to be dedicated. 
Now, from Leviticus 12, 8, we know that, that turtle doves were the, was the offering for, for those that were too, too poor to offer a sacrifice of a lamb for their firstborn child. So Joseph and Mary were poor. Now, again, this is, this is circumstantial evidence, but if the wise men had come prior to eight days after his birth, they would not have been poor. They would have been disobedient to offer turtle doves because they would have had plenty of money because of the, the massive value of the gifts that had been given to them. So we know that, that at the time of Christ's birth, they were poor, and they were poor at least until after eight days. At least until after eight days. But again, we, we don't know exactly how much gold was being offered, but it's referred to there as treasures, as treasures in verse 11. So these were not, this wasn't just a flake of gold. This was, was a kingly sum. Now again, we need to remember here that although Jesus, although Jesus was born in such humble conditions, he was a king even from his birth. He was the king of the Jews from his birth. And we see that because the wise men came and did what? They worshipped. They worshipped. Now, this term to worship sometimes does refer to, to people, to human beings in high authority. But most often, the term worship actually refers to what is reserved for God alone. For God alone. And even though Jesus was born in the natural way, his birth was anything but natural. He was the only one ever to have been conceived physically by the Holy Spirit. Ever. Now, there are some liberal scholars, and I use that term loosely, who would like to say that the virgin birth didn't really happen. Or they would like to say that, that the virgin birth isn't really important. Now, technically, you could really be a Christian who doesn't believe in the virgin birth, technically. But what it says, what it says far more about your faith or the lack thereof, because you are then denying what Holy Scripture very clearly says. Scripture says that Jesus was born of a virgin. And those who deny that fact are heretics. And you need to reject their teaching because they are false teachers and they are not teaching what Scripture says. Jesus was born of a virgin through the Holy Spirit. The only one physically born that way. But if you are here as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you too have been conceived through the Holy Spirit. We talked about that last week. The spiritual birth, it's a new birth. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. John, in John chapter 3, Jesus taught Nicodemus about that very thing. That regeneration is from the Holy Spirit. 
So Christian, you too, like Christ, have been conceived by the Holy Spirit. So they bowed, they came to see and to worship the king of the Jews. They came to worship a baby who was the king of the Jews. But Jesus didn't stay a baby. Dylan talked about that last night. We worship the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus has no beginning and no end. He is the eternal Son of God. In John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not the Word was a God, as the Jehovah Witnesses insert in their Bible. The Word was God. No beginning and no end. One day, Jesus is going to return to establish his kingdom forever. He came to inaugurate it at his birth, and when he returns, he is going to establish it forever. One day, every knee is going to bow before Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords in Philippians 2.10. But for many, it's going to be too late. The only ones who are going to to be able to, to be with Christ for eternity are those who have worshipped him in this life. One day, every knee is going to bow, but are you bowing your knee to him now? Is Jesus your king? Have you submitted to him in every part of your life? There are those who, who claim what they, they say, a, a no lordship salvation, that you just need to turn to Jesus as your savior, and then you can live like the devil. But if you have prayed that prayer, you are a Christian. Beloved, that is an absolute lie. We'll be talking about this extensively as we work through James. That if Jesus isn't the Lord of your life, of your whole life, then he is not your Lord. And if he is not your Lord, he is not your Savior. Now, we all struggle from time to time. Every one of us struggle with submission to God. But is the bent of your life submission? Are you striving to turn away from the things that God hates? Are you striving to obey him when you sin? Are you going to him in humble repentance and seeking his forgiveness, knowing that you are washed in the blood of Christ? It is only those who are truly saved. It is only those who are born again. It is only, only those who have Jesus as their Lord and Savior that are legitimately saved. It is only those who have him as their king that are saved. So let's continue here. We'll sing the next verse, verse 3, as we examine the frankincense. Frankincense to offer have I, incense owns a deity nigh, prayer and praising all men raising, worship him God most high. Oh, star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, 
Westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. So frankincense. Frankincense, many people probably don't know what frankincense is, but I'm assuming that most people know what incense is. Incense is, is a, a spice that is burned and, and the smoke has a, a pleasing aroma. And one of the key roles of the, of the priest was to go into the, the temple carrying a censer filled with incense. And in Roman Catholic churches, this still happens to this day where if you've ever visited a Roman Catholic church, and I don't really recommend it, but, but they have a, 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 uh, an orb that is full of incense and they're, and they're waving it and chanting and the smoke comes out and has quite a, quite a strong smell. Now, there's actually many, uh, many churches, especially churches of the emergent type. Now, emergent churches are those that have largely rejected Scripture as authority, and they have gone postmodern in the sense that they, they believe in a, a moral relativism. They believe that all truth is relative. They, they believe when they come to Scripture, they believe that they are the authority and that the correct interpretation of Scripture lies with the individual who is reading it. So if you have 40 people here in this room and they interpret Scripture 40 different ways according to the emergent church, each one of those is legitimate. Now, this is, this is a, a common heresy, and it's actually spreading at this moment. Many of the, even the churches here in Kelowna are going this way. And we need to guard against it. And that's why I said again, let it be Scripture alone that forms our authority. So these churches are, are going for this incense because they've, they've let go of the anchor of Scripture and they want to find the anchor in something so they find it in tradition. And because they don't have the Holy Spirit in their lives, they need to grab hold of something and they, they want a sensory experience. So they want the, the light of candles and they want the aroma of the incense because they, they don't have God and they need to grab hold of something. They feel they need to be tethered to something, so they grab hold of tradition. Now, as we will see, we don't need to offer incense anymore because we have Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And the whole of the priestly order has been fulfilled because it has served its purpose in pointing towards Jesus. Now, in a sense, we are priests under our great high priest. But the offering is over. The incense no longer has any place. The animal sacrifices that the priests also performed have no more place because it all pointed to Christ, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. So here we see a, a, a combination there, there. If this is indeed true, that, that, that the gold was to represent him as, his, as a king, and then the, the frankincense to represent him as a priest, and again, that's, that's dubious, but it was 
it would have been foreign at that time to have somebody who was both a king and a priest. They were separate offices. There's only one individual in Scripture, well, possibly two, but very likely only one individual in Scripture that was both a king and a priest. Does anybody know who that was? Melchizedek. That's right. He was the mysterious figure that that appeared in Genesis chapter 4, where when Abraham... Sorry, it's not Genesis 4. I've mistyped that. Genesis 14. In Genesis 14, verse 18, where, where, he come, where Abraham comes back after the war with, after the war and, and liberates um, and liberates Lot. But then he offers, here in verse 18, he offers to Melchizedek, which means the king of peace, sorry, king of Salem, which is with a Jerusalem king of peace. Sorry, Jerusalem is a city of peace, and that's where he comes from. And he, and he offers to Melchizedek, he offers to Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils of, his war, of the war. So he is here making a tithe to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek was a, a, a type or a shadow. He pointed ahead to Jesus Christ, who was both a king and a priest. And we see that all through, all through the book of Hebrews, where Jesus is our high priest. In Hebrews 5.10, we read about Jesus being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. After the order of Melchizedek. So we, we need to see here that that Melchizedek, now Jesus, that Melchizedek wasn't, wasn't Jesus. He wasn't a pre-incarnate Christ. But Jesus was, was what Melchizedek pointed to. Also look in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. In Hebrews 2, 17, we read, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Jesus here was born as a human being. He had to be born in the natural way and grow up and obey being like his brothers in every way, yet without sin, to fulfill the righteousness that we could never obey. And then Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus lived a fully human life. Now, there are sermons and sermons and sermons that could be preached on these texts, so I'm just giving you a very glossed over teaching on this here this morning. But, but Jesus was tempted. He understood what temptation was 
so that we could go to him as our high priest to intercede for us when we too are tempted. We can go to Jesus. We can go to God through Jesus because he is interceding for us. And he is also the high priest that was was offered for us. We saw that first there as propitiation from 2.17. But I want to spend just a few more minutes here on on chapter 9, verses 19 and following. Here in 19 and following, and I would encourage you to really study this on your own, but we see in verse 19 that the blood of, of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop was, was sprinkled. And the book itself, the book of the, 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 book of the law was, was sprinkled, saying this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And so the, the blood was sprinkled on the vessels that were used in worship. And things are purified with blood, verse 22. Purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the blood of the, of the bulls and lambs and goats pointed to the blood of Jesus Christ. So thus it was necessary, verse 23, for copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. For Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year, with blood not his own, for then he would have said to have suffered repeatedly for the, the foundation of the world, but as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. So by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the sinless Lamb of God, the wrath of God has been propitiated or turned away from us so that God can now look on us with favor because the punishment that we deserved, the debt that we owed, has been paid in full. It's been paid in full. And this brings us to the next verse of the song, to myrrh, to what exactly the myrrh is. bitter perfume breathes a life of gathering gloom soaring sighing bleeding dying sealed in a stone cold tomb oh star of wonder star of night star with royal beauty bright westward leading still proceeding guide us to thy perfect light so if people don't know what frankincense is they certainly don't know what myrrh is now myrrh is the resin of a bush that grows in arabia and it was very fragrant and was also extremely valuable it had several uses including medicinal ones but it was also used as part of the embalming process for bodies. It was used 
to as a spice to anoint the body to keep the the scent of decay from 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 taking over before the 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 celebration of life and the funeral procedures had been finished and we know that when Jesus died on the cross that many spices were used to anoint his body we see that in Mark 16:1 when we read when the sabbath was passed Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Now it's very likely that one of the spices that would have been used was in fact myrrh. And Mary the mother of Jesus is actually a euphemism. Sorry, Mary the mother of James, I just gave it away. Mary the mother of James is a euphemism for Mary the mother of Jesus. Because as we see from James, that James was in fact the brother of Jesus. And again, this is speculation, we don't know this, but I wonder if maybe some of the spices that were used were actually the very ones that had been given by this particular wise man. And so this points here, I believe, to the death of Christ that we just talked about. That Jesus died the death that we deserved. That he went into that tomb with those spices as the sacrifice. As not only our high priest, but also as the lamb. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. Because the sinless Lamb of God died for us. And so often in our culture, this, is, this could not be further from the minds in so many of the homes around this city. And it's grievous. Even though they use the name of Christ, I would argue in vain, when they say Christmas, Christ, he is far from their thoughts on December 25th, and he is far from their thoughts on the other 364 days of the year. And that is deplorable. But we need to ask here as well, what are we doing to make the name of Christ known? Not only at Christmas time, but every day of the year. Are you doing it with your words? Are you looking for opportunities to present the gospel? But are you living a life that is worthy of the gospel? Are you reflecting the life of Christ by the way you live your life. Because, brother and sister, if we bear the name of Christ but are not living for Christ and testifying of Christ, then we also are taking the name of the Lord in vain. Let's continue and we'll sing the, the final verse of the song. 
Glorious now, behold him arise, going and God and sacrifice. Alleluia, alleluia, earth to heaven replies. Oh, star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. Now, if Jesus had, had stayed dead in the tomb, there's also some who claim to be Christians who deny the resurrection of Christ. And if it's bad to deny the virgin birth, it is even worse, far, far worse to deny his resurrection. Christians, we don't worship a dead king. If Christ had died and stayed dead, that would have been the worst thing that had ever happened in the history of the universe. And even though it was the worst thing because of his resurrection, it was also the best thing. Because death couldn't hold him. He laid down his life. It was impossible for men to take it from him. He of his own free will. Now Christ had free will. He laid down his life for his children. But he also took it up again. It was in his power to lay it down, and it was in his power to take it up again. Elsewhere we read in Scripture that he was raised by the Father. Elsewhere in Scripture we, that we see that he was raised by the Son. This is a mystery, but it is a Trinitarian event. The resurrection is a Trinitarian event. Jesus Christ didn't stay dead. Hallelujah! I was just reading this morning from Zechariah 12. This is another beautiful, beautiful, beautiful prophecy of the coming of Christ. But here in Zechariah 12, we're not looking at a prophecy of his first coming. We're looking at a prophecy of his return because we serve a risen Christ who will return. Brothers and sisters, he is coming back for the church. He is coming back for his beautiful bride. He is coming back for you and for me. We read there in Zechariah 12 about, about this is a prophecy of what is going to come in the last days when the armies of the world are going to march on Jerusalem. And we see that, that the Lord is going to miraculously give miraculously give deliverance to the nation of Israel. And we see that everyone who was, was like, who, sorry, everyone who was just a normal person was like those of the line of David, those like, the, like one of the mighty men. They were so powerful. And those who were like, the, the, sorry, those who were, who were as powerful already as those of the line of David were like angels in their power, and they smote the enemies of God's people with an utter destruction. 
And then in verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The children of Israel are finally going to get it. They're finally going to understand who Jesus was, who Jesus is. And they will realize that they had crucified the Messiah. But while there is mourning, those who are elect will also rejoice. They will also rejoice. Look at that. They will look on me who they have pierced. This clearly points to the deity of Christ. They don't know they will look on him who they have pierced. They will look on me who they have pierced, who ascends from the clouds. This is referenced in Revelation chapter 1. This is one of my favorite passages to go to when I'm discussing the deity of Christ with a Jehovah Witness. Revelation 1 verses 7 and 8. This is glorious. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. And again, verse 17, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So I just want to clarify something that I said there. Those who are not born again, will mourn. They will call for the rocks to fall on them, to hide them. But those who are born again will rejoice as we worship our King who was born in the most humble of circumstances, who lived a righteous life, obeying the Father in thought and word and in deed, who did what we could never do, what we can't do even for a moment. And then he gave his life, dying on that cross in Calvary where the Father's wrath was poured out on him as Dylan taught us last night. And then three days later, he rose from the grave victorious over death and that ascended to the Father's side. And one day, he's returning to take us home to be with him forever. So this morning, are you worshiping Jesus as Scripture declares him to be? Let's pray.